Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Firearm-related injury is now the leading cause of death among children and adolescents in the United States. Meanwhile, the United States is experiencing a severe shortage of infant formula. Dr. John Harrington is here to speak with us today about topics making headlines in pediatric news. Dr. Harrington is the Vice President of Quality, Safety, and Clinical Integration and the Division Director of General Academic Pediatrics at Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk, Virginia. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Harrington. Where are we today on the infant formula shortage? Today is June 1st, so we're kind of at um, an improvement stage, I think. So a lot of the uh, things that occurred in, you know, giving people sort of uh, understanding. So when we first had the problems with Coronabacter, which was found in the formulas, and then, you know, that was back in 2021, we really didn't get the stop, you know, can't make any more formula from Abbott, you know, back in March when it finally just was closed down. So so from that time, from March to now, we're finally getting through that log jam of like, we just don't have formula. 43% of the formulas were just taken out of, you know, sort of the institutions and stuff that usually create those formulas and stuff. So right now, I think we're backlogging that and we're starting to get more formula on shelves for parents and stuff. It's the critical formulas that are, are, are difficult are the ones that are for special diets or kids that have metabolic disorders they were only getting them through that certain company that created them and stuff. So there have been substitutions that have been in place. A lot of places like the AAP and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services have put on stuff on web websites for you to like look up stuff to find things. And even most of the Department of Health have looked at what are their resources through the states and stuff like that to provide formulas for parents. And it, that information has gone out to like all the pediatricians and all the different sort of people that take care of kids, even family practices and stuff. So I think the message is out there now. There was a big push to also, you know, breastfeed and stuff, which is usually what we really want um, kids to do and infants to do. So I think that pushed the breastfeeding sort of initiatives as well. And the fact that we have breast milk banks and the breast milk banks can supply that need if, if needed for uh, some of the parents, if they, you know, didn't want to give a formula and you could always give breast milk if you needed to. And so you can get that from a breast milk bank. So that was another sort of uh, avenue that some of us who have breast milk banks available to us were able to use in our healthcare systems and stuff. So that was exceptionally helpful as well. Another topic, unfortunately, making headlines arise in gun violence particularly impacting children and adolescents. What are we seeing with that? So June 3rd, this is Friday, is gun violence awareness or gun, uh, gun safety awareness. And, you know, I think a lot of pediatricians and a lot of people out there really want change, at least even if it's, even if it's the smallest incremental change in terms of, you know, if I have, if a person has a mental health problem, if the person is maybe not a full adult. I mean, I, I think we have changed the idea of, you know, is a person who's not trained in the military or whatever, you know, under 21, who, who has a mental health problem, who, you know, can get a, a rapid fire or a multi-firing uh, gun, you know, is that, a, is that a smart thing for us to be doing and stuff? And, and, you know, things like that need to be discussed 
openly and transparently so that so that people can kind of make good decisions about this. It just seems like it becomes politicized into the, you know, your rights and stuff and your, your gun rights and your, you know, um, Second Amendment rules and stuff like that. And, and in all honesty, we just want safety. Like, it, you know, we we can drive our car, but we have to wear a seatbelt, right? You can buy a gun, but you have to be a certain age or you have to have a certain sort of thing to in order to get that gun. And it doesn't have to be severely limiting. It just has to be, you know, it just has to be sane, you know, sanity <laughs> things and stuff. So there, there really needs to be a way to do that, that we can't just have to be stuck in this sort of, you know, conundrum of, well, well, that'll deny, that'll deny this person, that'll deny this person, that'll deny this person. You know, I, I really attribute it to the same thing as, as car safety. And actually, if you look at the leading causes of death, it was in the New England Journal of Medicine for kids and adolescents and stuff. It really does show it dra- drastically, like motor vehicle accidents have come down as a reason for kids dying. And the thing that's actually outpacing it now is firearm related injuries. And so, you know, when you look at that, you say like, well, what did we do for cars? How did this come down? Well, because we made rules. We said, you got to wear a seatbelt. You have to wear, a, you have to be in a car seat if you're too small. You have to sit in the back seat. You can't sit in the front seat if you're under 13. You know, like all of these things are sort of just rules that were put into place that have saved lives. And, and it's, you know, to do that, we need to do that for guns as well. I mean, we just need to put in things that will help children not die. And so some of those require that, you know, kids shouldn't be buying guns, right? You know, so if, if, if you really want to think about the adult brain, you really don't get an adult brain until you're 25. So a kid 21, you know, and, and now even in our system of, you know, sort of kids not really growing up and leaving the house and stuff, there's a lot of kids that are still in the house, you know, 21, which might not have been true, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So the laws that we have now don't necessarily work for the guns and the things that we have now. So they're pretty outdated. You know, it's a, someone was re- relating it to like, you know, Model T Fords, you know, in terms of how we, you know, how we handle our safety in a car with gun safety right now versus what we have for cars now that, you know, they beep if you get too close to another car, if you're outside of a lane, if you we have all these safety devices in our cars because we knew they were killing people. Now we have guns and we have to come up with ways, gun locks, something like that, you know, something that would allow people to sort of make things safer and stuff. And, and, you know, we as a system have to come up with that and stuff. And hopefully, hopefully we will. Hopefully we will. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that firearm related injury is now the leading cause of death among children and and adolescents. Not only is it on the rise, but now the leading. Switching gears here now, COVID-19, something we've obviously been talking about for the last two years, but what are we experiencing now in regard to COVID-19 vaccines among children and adolescents? So recently, the vaccine for kids 5 to 12, they approved the booster for that age group. And so what most people are seeing is even with the Omicron surge and the new variant surge and stuff like that, getting the original vaccine can still provide a degree of protection, especially against serious illness and stuff. So even for adults now, people have gotten their first doses and then they've gotten now, you can get two boosters now. Anybody can get two boosters if they want them. It's been five months since the last one. So all of that's sort of happening in the healthcare system. Some people are mandating them. Some people are suggesting them or strongly suggesting them and stuff. In kids, you know, you've got your kids that are five to 12 and 12 to 12 to 18 
and stuff. But now coming soon to a theater near you is the vaccine for six months to four years of age. And that got kind of pushed off a little bit, although they kind of brought out the data and said that the data looks good for kids and that the Pfizer maybe looks a little bit better than the Moderna, but you'll need two doses, I'm sorry, three doses of the Pfizer, only two doses of the Moderna for this age group. So that may also be a you know game changer for some parents who want just two shots versus three shots. And it'll be a, a series of shots similar to like what we do with hepatitis B or something like that, where you would give a first dose and then three weeks later, a second dose. And then two months after the second dose, you would get a third dose. And so, and then that would be immunized, initial immunization. Now, whether boosters will be needed will be another decision that they'll have to make once we go through another probably year of COVID and stuff. So at this point in time, you know, if you ask parents and when you look at this sort of situation, the drop-off for wanting vaccine for kids has gone pretty steeply. So most people are not rushing in to get vaccines anymore. And I think there'll be a group of people, there'll probably be a third of people who want to get vaccines for the kids six months to four years of age. There'll be a third of people that'll want to wait. And there'll be a third of people that say, I don't want to get that vaccine. It may be more or less in some of those degrees, but, but I think that's what you're going to see as the three most likely sort of ways of looking at it. I, I want it, I want to wait, or I ain't getting it, right? So, so we'll have to sort of deal with that messaging because I think that'll be really important to prevent another outbreak, you know, another surge and stuff. So I, I think that's going to be a really important thing. Who, who knows if the next surge will be more deadly than the last one? The, the last two have not been as bad, meaning we haven't had as many deaths and we haven't had as many kids getting sick with the MISC, which is the multi-inflammatory systemic COVID and stuff. So we haven't seen that outbreak of that with with these last two variants that we thought we would with the Delta and stuff like that. So we're hopeful that we will continue along that line, having sort of variants that aren't as, you know, bad. They may be as contagious, but they won't be as likely to cause significant illness and stuff, but we still have to deal with it. You know, there's still over a million deaths of COVID. So, you know, we're still probably going to see more deaths over the next year or two, but it hopefully will fall into the ranges of what we see with flu and things like that. And the last topic today, what kind of staffing issues are you seeing in pediatric medicine today? So I think all staffing models in every healthcare system have taken a brunt and and in the adult world, probably more so because of the fact that COVID hit the adult world a little harder than the pediatric world. But having said that, there are certain areas of the hospital that have significantly lower staffing. You know, one of them that is nationwide is uh, respiratory therapists. So respiratory therapists was right in the heart of it, right? They're, they have to be right with the air and the fluids and the facial stuff, you know, so they're, they're close into COVID and stuff. And so we just have not been able to backfill that. A lot of nurses left the institution of nursing and just said, hey, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to do private duty nurse. I'm going to do home nurse. I'm not going to be in the hospitals anymore. So everybody's struggling with nursing. And so, and then the traveling nursing programs came out. And so people could travel and go to places and stuff and and do things for more money. So it was kind of this, you know, sort of volume of people moving around the country and filling positions for the highest dollar amount. And so a lot of places have now sort of petered that out. And now we're seeing sort of where does it all fall out now? So most places are probably somewhere in the lower staffing amounts, like 10 to 25% down and just dealing with it, 
learning how to kind of work schedules and and have less staff and see if you can still do the same things that you were doing before. And many of the pediatric sort of practices here, we're seeing a lot of the winter flu season and winter viruses that we usually see in the winter. And now it's June and we're seeing them now. So it's very discouraging to not have as much staff when you have like a viral season that looks like wintertime in the, in the summer. So we're dealing with that. We're having large amounts of people coming to our urgent care centers and our ED with illness, you know, with, with viruses from everywhere, from croup to, you know, RSV to adenovirus and all, all the viruses are out there right now. And so usually you see them in waves, but we're seeing them all at one time along with COVID, which is now back up to nine or 10% of the testing that we're doing and stuff. So, so it is pretty, it's pretty amazing that the staffing models have held, but I think there's still what is unseen is the stress on the staff and stuff. And if you push staff long enough, um, eventually they will have burnout. And so we have seen that in some, some of the fields, people are lasting two or three years and they're just saying, this is just not, I just can't do this. And so people are, are burning out. And so we're seeing not only we're seeing we're trying to hire and people are are being hired, we're seeing people leaving. So as fast as you can put people into places, people are leaving. So that's been a really tricky thing for most staffing models and stuff. And I think most people have found that that's the critical issue right now is continuing staffing our healthcare facilities with people who are well-trained to do that and stuff. So, so that's the other thing you have to train people and the training part takes time. It's hard to do that if your turnover is so fast. So many of us are working on those aspects to try and make things better so that the healthcare system can stay healthy. Is there anything else that you'd like to add today, Dr. Harrington? Well, I, you know, it's two to two and a half years into the pandemic. So, I, you know, we can't really call it an endemic yet because we're still having high rates and stuff. So you know, I guess we can call it a continuing demic. You know, I don't know what, uh, there's, there's not a lot of terms to this, but it is one of these things where, you know, you have to sort of work with your healthcare systems and, you know, our mental health is really probably the most important aspect. And I think that goes with everything, the COVID causing mental health problems. I think with gun safety and stuff like that, mental health is really big. And then we are opening actually a mental health hospital here that'll be 14 stories with four full floors for inpatient pediatric mental health, because it was so important to us to provide some place to take kids who have real mental health needs. And there really wasn't anything available. And so I think more places are probably going to have to do this because they're winding up in our ERs and we can't find a place for them. And we were tired of that. And so I think that's the next bastion is to take care of the mental health that that is going to plague us probably over the next millennium. (laughs) So we'll have to sort of see how that goes. Thank you again, Dr. Harrington. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And thanks for all the work that you do with, uh, with kids today. Thanks, Jessica. You take care.